0: omg i'm back hey everyone welcome back to the new season of entrebind i'm your host pj it's been a long time i actually have heard those words exactly and i'm happy to be back so let's get started for a long gap and here i am with the season two i know season one was like a mix of everything and we had entrepreneurs from different fields having started in different areas and different levels i think it kind of explicitly talked about the overview of entrepreneurship so now i'm back with season two i'm planning it to take niche down if you guys have seen the posters and social media yes that title love season two is the game of strategic funding you know, we are listening to a lot of things in terms of inflation, the economic downfall, and we also have the worst thing that's happening around layoffs. With all this happening in and around, Shark Tank has been popping on my YouTube page and the LinkedIn is flooded with Shark Tank India's post, like completely flooded. Just it kind of intrigued me to really understand what startups actually need in the economic downfall that we are about to face i don't know are we really gonna have an economic downfall i still couldn't believe that we're gonna have an economic downfall maybe I'm, I'm just getting the flash of the book that i read recently don't believe everything you think so stay tuned listen to all the episodes because i'm gonna have the big shots on the show so i hope you do not want to miss these episodes I used to start every episode with a book outline or what I've read or understood from the book, but after a certain episode, I wasn't doing it due to time constraint, but now I don't think I'm going to take it anymore. So the book that I'm going to talk throughout the season is Don't Believe Everything You Think. More about the book at the end of the podcast. So now it's time to jump into the podcast. So let's get started. It feels so good, you know, to learn everything in a classroom environment. We have the so-called professors helping us understanding the ins and outs of whatever we need. There's no better place, you know, than to learn in the classroom. So I decided why not start understanding about the startup investment from the most experienced. And for the second season, I have the title, The Game of Strategic Funding. And I have the most apt guest guest. Agostino Mena welcome to the show first of all and thank you for accepting my invitation how are you feeling today
1: I'm feeling great thanks for asking and I'm looking forward to uh, sharing some information with you
0: So he is a PhD graduate from University of Toronto who worked as a professor for 17 plus years and he doesn't stop over there. He became the co-founder and a strategic advisor at NoQuest.net and a management and a strategy consultant at The Big Leaf. So can I say I'm just talking to one of the finest minds in the world right now?
1: Appreciate that.
0: (laughs) Okay, so the truth is truth. To begin with, uh, I'm I've split this into three sections. The first section, it'll be the investors in general, all the basics, you know, terms and investments. And the second will be what investors expect from a startup. And on third, what startup should know before approaching an investor. So I like to start first with the section one, the investors in general. The role of investor, how much fantasizing does it look for you?
1: Yeah, you know, it's not as glamorous as like Shark Tank or Dragon's Den. I think there's just a lot of hard work that goes into making decisions on being an investor in early stage companies, late stage companies. It's a team effort. Obviously, it's not just a one-person type of show. It's many people involved in it. It's many negotiations that happen. But I would say overall, I'm, I'm very um, grateful that I have this opportunity to be an investor, to be in this space. I've dreamed about it my whole life. And I tried to balance my academic career with being in the uh, startup space to invest in the early stage companies, mainly early stage companies. So I would say um, the process itself can take months, maybe six months or more for us anyway. And there's a lot of meetings right. with the entrepreneur, with the founders of the company to uh, go over many details. We obviously we call it due diligence. That's if we're interested in it. Uh, In investing. So I would say overall, the investment process is lengthy, and it could be very detailed. And you need a bunch of people involved in it. Like a lawyer, lawyers, very important part of the process as well.
0: (laughs) So I could see from whatever you said, it's it's a tiring process that involves a group of people in it. But what inspired you to be in this sector? I could see that you have your PhD from politics as a base. And what made such a huge drift towards investment?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I would say... It would, probably comes to my family background. I had uh, parents that were immigrants here to Canada, and they were always motivated to start their own business, and which they did. And that influenced me to have like this motivation to create or to build businesses like they did. Obviously, theirs was more of a small business type. But I believe it was those, those early childhood or those formative years where I watched my parents struggle and succeed In uh, buildings, buying businesses and building them up in the local region that we lived in here in Canada. So I would say definitely was that. And then as I moved into my academic career and university, I started to gravitate more towards entrepreneurship. I had a mentor when I was in my undergraduate year and I started working for him. It was a very unique position. It was basically helping, this is like startup businesses, entrepreneurs locally. And then he scaled it across the country, and I watched him closely with the curriculum and how he approached starting these types of businesses or helping start these businesses, pardon me. So I think that was the second biggest level that influenced me. And then I think it was just a natural progression when I was in Toronto doing my PhD, and that I started seeing people in finance, and obviously Toronto is the financial capital of Canada, And that kind of drew me into that particular asset class, uh, VC space, more than like regular portfolio management, like managing a passive fund or something like that. I was definitely more interested in in these exciting companies where I can meet really talented people, whether they're scientists or whether they're non-scientists. But I always like to meet people that can contribute somehow to making an impact on the world. So that was part of it. And you know, that's my job. My job is to find those kind of people and invest in them and help them grow. So I think that whole process of building something from nothing is something that excites me quite a bit. You know, traditionally when we're trained in business school, you're trained to become a manager and you, and you, you basically help value, you help increase the value incrementally as a manager. And I felt that that wasn't my personality trait. I prefer to try to Make a big impact on challenging the establishment. I always, I think that was the fourth thing. Was uh, just to answer, kind of wrap up your question. It's, it was. I always go for the underdog. I like the little guy, you know, the the little guy, and the, to be successful. So if I could see the little guy grow and overtake the big guy, kind of like this David and Goliath thing from the, from the yeah. story. So I really, I really favor that that particular mindset, I would say.
0: You are an investor and you have this other side of the passion towards teaching. You've been the professor for 17 plus years. What is that? Like walk me through it.
1: Yeah, you know, I think for me, like I love university and universities where we create new knowledge and we impart that knowledge on students who take that into the workforce or take it into their lives and make an impact. So I would say, yes, I find that very fulfilling if I could help a student or many students fulfill their personal or professional career with my particular expertise, I would say that's very fulfilling. But at the same time, I think universities are also very institutional. And so I like to break away sometimes and go back into the private sector and work in this particular asset class and find these interesting companies. And what I do is I go back into the university environment and I help Uh, And I tell these students the stories, you know, I don't think it's useful or should be not as useful if, you know, just lecturing from a textbook. I think you have to lecture from real life. And I think that's the major reason why that I like to I like to be visiting professors all the time where I've been to several different universities is because, first of all, I like to see what other parts of the country are doing in terms of entrepreneurship, Mm -hmm. in terms of universities. I like to meet new people. In the case of Concordia, one of my goals was, you know, every time I make a change in my life, I always like to find three or four goals. And when I went to Montreal as a limited term professor, one of my goals was to obviously publish more research. My second goal was to get to know the faculty more to collaborate on that research. Third was to make an impact on students' lives. And fourth was to improve my French. So I think um, I would Mm -hmm. say that I'm almost there on all of those. And uh, yeah, so I think, Basically, bringing the war stories from my particular professional career into the classroom, I think students really value that, and they get you know real life exposure to the deals that we make, the investments that we do make or don't make and uh, I think that's much more better than you know out of a textbook or out of a PowerPoint slide. and I mean that fits with what universities are doing today. they're doing experiential learning, yeah, they want students to to be, uh, you know, career ready. They Mm want to like show these students that this is how the business world works or whatever the discipline they study. And I think that's the best way to do it in terms of faculty members that do get out of the classroom and take a year off or take six months off and just go out there and see what's happening in industry, see what's happening in the economy, and then bring it back and let the students know about it.
0: So I have these terminologies and I need your version of definition for them. Yeah. So first I'll start with venture capitalists. Like how do you define a venture capitalist?
1: I would say a venture capitalist is somebody that risks their capital or risks their limited partnerships capital. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they invest in early stage, late stage companies. Obviously there's VCs, there's many different, Colors of VCs. There's VCs that invest in only early stage companies or pre-revenue. Or like I know a VC, okay. that wouldn't invest with over 10 million. And then there's VCs that invest in companies that have already arrived and they're like later stage, or revenue driven. So they want to be part of that uh, that momentum. In that sense, so I would say a VC definitely is somebody that takes other people's money. In some cases their money. And they invest in risky companies, riskier companies, I would say, than, you know, the big blue chip companies. So I would say the risk takers, Mm -hmm. um, they are also very empathic. They're very analytical. They're very intuitive. And they explore a lot. And they have to have a, a global or holistic mindset. But at the same time, they have to have a team around them that will be able to help them mitigate those risks to their limited partners. Yeah. I guess that would be more of like a short answer. Yeah.
0: So the next would be angel investor.
1: Yeah. So angel investor is an even earlier stage investment uh, <laughs> process. And they basically invest their own hard-earned money. Usually they're wealthy people with a certain criteria in terms of what makes them, that the, they, what they can invest with. It's usually uh, a criteria set by the regulators. And uh, they these days, though angel investors work in networks. So I would say that this network yep. effect is very important in that it's let's say I'm an angel investor and I want to invest in a company. I probably would do it if I had a group of angel investors that invested with me. But I would say that there's also something called a super angel investor who has their own, or you can maybe bring that up to a family office where they usually have their own criteria in terms of what they invest in. And sometimes they would invest uh, on their own, for example. So I would say angel investors are much more earlier stage, and they use their, their own money, maybe between twenty to fifty thousand, maybe even up to a hundred thousand dollars. And they um, they would probably look at it more as a way to get involved with the with the venture, knowing that they may not recoup their investment. So I would say it's a high risk. Than the VC investor, Mm -hmm. they want to be part of something, you know, like they want to grow with it. They're probably usually in their fifties, they're retired, and they um, they look at it as a way to uh, for some enjoyment, a journey to go with the company if it does take off.
0: So the next is private equity firm.
1: Yeah, so private equity is a little bit bigger (laughs) in terms of what they do, and uh, it's a group. It's a group of people that um, take this money that is given to them by investors and they invest in companies that they believe uh, have growth potential that are already, they've already arrived. In other words, the market has already accepted their product or maybe they think that sometimes they would keep management on and they would, uh, and in most cases they would keep the existing management on, but they would make an offer buy out the company. And uh, in most cases they would help grow that company. And even in some other cases, they may even let it go into the IPO to generate even more value for their shareholders. So I would say that okay. private equity companies um, are definitely making bigger deals than, like, say, angel investors.
0: So when you're talking about VCs and angel investors, I have this question jumping back and forth in my mind, who has the more risk?
1: Well, I would say that the angel investors probably have the biggest risk because they usually... I mean, but then at the same time, they don't risk as much money. But I would say that the angel investor gets on at the very early stages before a VC comes on because a VC would probably come on at a later stage when the company has some traction. There's a market has accepted it. Uh, there's a product market fit, as we say. And uh, they're, you know, they're in that so-called S-curve where they're starting to scale. So as the company starts to scale... You'll see some more interest with VCs. Uh, so, but at the lower stages, I would say that the um, angel investor carries the most risk.
0: So I'm right now jumping to the section two, which is what investors expect from the startup. When evaluating a startup, what are the key factors you consider in a startup?
1: This is the time where I took some notes. <laughs> this is I'd remember.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> I remember. You can go ahead. No problem. <laughs>
1: I would say, obviously... Uh, When we evaluate it, we look at the stage of the company. So our particular fund invests in early stage companies. So I would say we look at um, things related to the historical, if there is any, or the forecasts. We would look at, if there is history, we would look at the historical record in terms of the finances. I mean, the earlier stage you are, it's forecasting more than a historical (laughs) record, for example. Mm -hmm. So we look at the numbers in that sense. I would say we look at competition with other funding sources, for example. So that's a big one as well. Uh, some other notes I made for you are: I would say the experience of the founder. How much experience do they have? Is it, is it a first? Is it a first venture mm-hmm. running? Is it the tenth one? Are they serial entrepreneurs? So that's a big one because we like to see a management team that's cohesive, that has some mm-hmm. experience. Uh, because ultimately, you have to remember that management's the one that's running the show, the founders, right? Yeah. So if they can't execute, then we would probably not invest or we would, like, try to find a way to replace them. But, you know, we'd have to have – because in the VC space, it's about, uh, it's about two things. It's about uh, control and economics. So when we make an investment, yeah. it's how much control do we have over that company, and economics is how much ownership or how much equity are they giving up. So that's a very important point in terms of negotiations. So I think that's something we look at as well. Um, we look at numbers. Like I said earlier, numbers, numbers, numbers. The numbers matter <laughs> in that sense. So whether it's past performance, predictions for the future, revenue earnings, uh, before interest rate, you know, IBIDA, cash burn, headcount, each of those factors is important. Those metrics matter. There was a book written by John Doerr called uh, book, uh, Metrics or a Measure What Matters. And he's, a, you know, obviously a famous a famous VC. So discounted cash flows. And these are all important considerations. And, you know, probably a last thing would be the current economic climate. What's the contextual factor saying? Okay. Like For example, we're going into recession. We have high inflation. How does that impact, for example, valuations, which is the last point? is I think valuations is a major consideration that the entrepreneur and the VC or the investor makes is, you know, we negotiate in terms of the valuations and that all flows from that, whether it's pre-money and then the post-money. So I would say that um, those are all important considerations to consider.
0: So I was about to ask the question on pre-money and post-money valuation because those are very much important. If you're going to ask any terms of the equity... So, how do you evaluate the pre-money valuation? Post-money, it's fine, but pre-money, how do you particularly evaluate it?
1: Yeah, this is, um, you know, I rely. There's a a guy from New York University, professor, the guru of valuation, Damador Ashran. He's probably the godfather of it, so I use a lot of his stuff. And um, I would say that in our early-stage companies, it's very difficult. Because the numbers could be real. They can't be real. We look at the assumptions, especially because they really yes. have a track record. It's all forecasting. So we use a combination of – it's called narrative versus numbers because part of the story is, the, is, is just that. It's the narrative. It's what's driving the story behind the founders. And um, so in our case, we look for something called MTP, which is called Massive Transformational Purpose. So we like to see that our founders and our founding team that we invest in have a major purpose. Like what is your major transformational or sorry what is your massive transformational purpose? So I think that's part of the pre-money valuation and I think we look at also the facts that can they actually scale this? Is there like an unmet need? Is there a problem and is the problem big enough that you know as they burn their cash is that money going to be able to be recouped? In the long term, right? Because that's where valuations come from and why they're big valuations. But, you know, the other thing that's impacting, as I mentioned earlier, is context. You know, interest rates have been going up, which means valuations have been going down. So, you know, the VC space has been quite popular in the last several years because interest rates were so low. And that ballooned valuations and made a lot of these companies on paper very, very, uh, the valuations very high. So I think that's something that we're all coming to terms with now in the VC space.
0: So if there is a valuation mistake and, you know, I've I've started to invest in the company, that's going fine. But after some time, I feel that it's not about my means and those are not going with my value. So I want to exit. What do you think would be my best exit strategy and why do you suggest it?
1: Well, I think, first of all, you have to be careful because, you know, if you exit a company before, before it's time. I think that's really showing no cohesiveness with the founding team as a VC. Because, you know, once we like to have a board seat with our VC company, and that's all under negotiation, of course. And I think that's part of control. So, normally, yes, you know, the world isn't perfect. And, you know, a lot of the companies that, you know, VCs do invest in, they go sideways, for example, or they don't go as, as planned. So, we try to mitigate that risk as much as possible. To figure out if there are any assets that we can maintain for future uh you know if we need to sell it or have something that happens within the company and maybe we're we're just wrong you know particularly the problem with our this particular space which you, you know you mentioned earlier is that the risks are higher yes we try to mitigate those risks yeah but you know anything could happen and we're prepared for that as much as possible so if those things were to happen and you know we would probably try to Get as much control if you know at a certain point to make decisions in some cases the entrepreneur might have to the founder might have to get let go uh, because we feel that the entrepreneur may be be poorly executing you know this is some of the domain if you remember activist investors we pull that from them there's many companies in the world that are, that are, are not run very well by managers so activist investors would come in and take over same similar to what we would do although we wouldn't want to do that because it's tough we have to replace them and that's really not something that we're prepared to do uh, but if you know if that were to happen as I said the world isn't perfect we would try to mitigate that as much as possible uh, by taking whatever assets we have left over so at least we could sell something off to uh, salvage a little bit of what the money that went into it
0: After a company goes public, do you think it's very much important that an investor should exit the company or stay with it?
1: Yeah, you know, that's kind of a subjective opinion. Uh, I've seen that happen both times. You know, we call it a liquidation event. And um, I would say that if the liquidation event occurs, sometimes the founder stays on. For example, a Toronto-based company called Inkbox Was purchased by uh, by Bic, the French company. You know the famous Fred Shavers, and they were sold for 65 million, and the founders stayed on. So I've seen combinations where the founders Uh were bought out, they left, they got a package. In other cases, they were bought, and the founders stayed on. In some cases, founders were just let go with a package, and professional management took over. Because there's a certain skill set that entrepreneurs or founders have that professional managers take over when the company starts to scale and grow.
0: What do you think the common mistakes that startups make before and after receiving a funding?
1: Yeah, you know, this is something that uh, probably I would go to a term sheet. And uh, I did make make notes on that as well. (laughs) But I would say the term sheet means that the VC is interested in you. They're interested in investing in you. And the entrepreneur gets really excited about that and says, oh, no, we have have somebody interested in us. Uh, We're going to get funding for that. Uh, but you know, there's a whole lot of a whole lot of strings attached to that. There's tons of different things that the entrepreneur, for example, negotiating pre and post money. And I just made like an example of that in terms of if an entrepreneur says, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll give you invest in uh, you know 10 million dollars of post money, and the VC says we'll give you 10 million dollars of pre money. You know, that's a trick, right? That's so we want the pre money valuation to yeah. so get more. As opposed to, so these are things that, I mean, there's so many things that I, um, you know, convertible debt and warrants. These things I probably would make the, I would advise the entrepreneur to shy away from, uh, even liquidity preferences, you know, the share of liquidity amount and who gets what and when. So I would say that the entrepreneur should really read the details of the term sheet because there's many little hidden, hidden things in there that take the advantage because we want control. Right. I told you the two major things are control and economics. Yeah. And I think the entrepreneur should really read the term sheet to the best possible he or she can. Uh, that would probably be my biggest advice to the entrepreneur.
0: So now I'm going to jump to the section three, like what startup should know before approaching an investor. As an investor, I could do a lot of research over the startup before investing into it. But as a startup, what question should I ask the potential investor before taking them on board?
1: Oh, so you're talking about early stage pre-revenue companies at the very beginning? Entrepreneurs? Uh,
0: yeah, could be the early stage. Yeah, the go- those goes into a pre-seed stage.
1: Yeah. So I think obviously those, they need to really make a case. They need a, a, they need a very good pitch deck with a good financial model. They need um, an executive summary. They need their finances to be logical based on assumptions that um, that make sense. They need a strong narrative in terms of a strong pitch. Um, I would say that they need also to show typical things that you would expect. Where's the unmet need? You know, as simple as that. What's the unmet need in the market? Who are the competitors? What industry are you in? And what type of industry is driving those changes? You know, are you a small fish in a big pond? or the other way around right are you do you have a premium product premium platform or are you you know competing on price these strategies and how you position yourself in the market and ultimately you have to show that there's exponential growth at least 25% compound annual growth rates is what will attract investors right because then at that point once you start to grow yeah. it's easier to attract those investors because they want to be in on it right they want to be part of making that making the money, but it's at that early stage that uh, you're going to have a hard time because you have to have a solid team in place as well to show that these numbers make sense, or at least they could be fiction. They can't be, but at least they are showing you're showing that they grow and you understand the industry that you're in. And probably most importantly, if they ask you a question like what is your, uh, I don't know, customer acquisition costs, <laughs> for example, and you don't have an answer to that, you have to have an answer to all the metrics that the investors ask you.
0: So there are this group of investors that I have mm-hmm. who belong to the same domain that they are very famous on investing, let it be tech or food industry. And those those guys are very, very famous for investing in it. But I want to find the right person who, who could make, who could add such a value to my side. What do you think I should think very much importantly before, you know, making the decision of picking that particular investor?
1: I would say as a teacher to a student, I would say do your homework, get to know who that VC is, get to know what they invest in, because VCs invest in certain verticals, for example, that may not be part of yours. So let's say, you know, we invest in fintech, but you're not a fintech, right? Or we invest in healthcare and you're not a healthcare company. So you have to make sure that you're speaking to people that are interested in your industry, I would say. So uh, that would be number one. And number two, I would get to know them. You know, VCs, they like it when you do homework on them as much as they do homework on you. you know, listen to their podcasts. There's VCs that are always talking about their likes and dislikes and what they like to do. They like to travel. They like to like collect art. Whatever it is, get you know, have some type of um, commonality with them. And, you know, I think the biggest thing that most people don't realize is that a big thing is you have to have a high EQ. You have to have a high emotional intelligence. And I always say that to my entrepreneurs and my students is that's a big selling point for you. If you're empathetic, if you uh, listen carefully, if you're like, you know, you show a genuine interest in them and what their likes are. I think that goes a long way in terms of likability. Because ultimately, if they don't like you, they're not going to deal with you. You know, we like to deal with people that we, we like. They're real. They're real, yeah. They're genuine. And I think that's a very important consideration that I would probably give, give that advice to startup companies.
0: Contrary, I have an investor who provides funding more than what I need, but wants to be more involved in the startup operations, but the founders are not comfortable with it. But how do you think this situation can be managed? Just as a curious question, I wanted to ask you.
1: Oh, I would probably, you know, I really believe in radical transparency. And I think you should sit down with that investor and tell them, uh, you know, how you're feeling. And I think I wouldn't be offended by that if you radically told me what was going on. And uh, I think having a can- candid conversation with that person will, will reveal maybe what their motivations really are, and you'll you'll express what your motivations are in terms of that discomfort you might have. So yeah, I would say. Being open and uh, transparent with these kind of people is a, is an important consideration.
0: Like, do you have some tips for startups, like how they can negotiate their terms with the investor and I ensure like both parties have satisfied?
1: Yeah, this is a good question uh, because you know sometimes at the end of a deal, the entrepreneur feels like they might have got the short end of the stick, and uh, the VC is always wanting control. Yeah. But you know, in our case. I would say a lot of VCs are like that. But in our case, we like to make our entrepreneur feel comfortable. And we would suggest that the entrepreneur does get a lawyer, their own representation in the process. Because negotiation, I think, is a key. Just as much as the term sheet and signing a term sheet is important. I think negotiation is a major, major consideration. And VCs, quite frankly, will take advantage of the entrepreneur if the entrepreneur is not skilled In seeing what, you know, for example, I mentioned earlier about pre and post money and the ownership and how much money they should put in or like maybe liquidation preference or employee pool, those type of things. I think those are complex, complicated things uh, or vested pools. And these are things that I think the entrepreneur may be surprised to realize that they need to know about just as much as running their business. They need to understand those terms and those conditions. And so, I mean, it's probably beyond the time of this podcast. But my, my advice to them would be, if they wanted to... There's a book that I tell my students to read. It's called Getting to Yes. I would suggest they read that book okay. and it help them negotiate and understand the process better.
0: Uh, can you repeat the book name again?
1: Called Getting to Yes.
0: So, we're probably at the end of the show. Two more general questions to go. What's your piece of advice to start kick-starting into investment?
1: Oh, creating your own fund as a VC. I would say yeah. I would definitely go out to Toronto or major centers like Montreal, <laughs> start getting to know institutional investors, go to parties, go to events, go to like incubators or accelerators, get your face out there, get your name out there and tell them that what you do, show that you're like reliable, that, you, um, that you're really interested in the space. And I would probably say to, as a young student, get a job in the VC space at the, you know, at the low level position first, like an analyst or a junior analyst, get to know the space, understand how it works. And then once you're ready, you can start raising your own money.
0: What is passion and failure means to you?
1: Passionate failure means to me is that I tried everything I could to build this business, to make it work. And I don't have any regrets
0: great that's a great answer <laughs> so we're at the end i am really overwhelmed with all the you know knowledge that i've got today and i feel the listeners are also going to get a lot of knowledge from this and i i, I just wish this session is going to extend more uh, but that couldn't as you have some work and i'm hoping sure that i'm going to do another session with you detailly, if you're available in the future i I'll, I'll love to do that because this session is going to be helpful for so much more startups who got, who's just kick-starting into this field. At least for 0.1% community out there, it's going to be so much more helpful.
1: I appreciate you asking me. Thank you for, so much. Just one more thing to say. If you are if you want to start a business, if you want to be an entrepreneur or a founder, it's a great time to do it.
0: Thank uh-huh. you. That That's yeah. a great advice that you've given me. So the book that I'm going to talk throughout the season is Don't Believe Everything You Think. After season 1, I kind of left with an emotional imbalance of whether or not to proceed to season 2. Throughout season 1, I was not getting the kind of reach that I expected. But it's okay, you know, you are not supposed to reach the exact heights that you want in the first go, right? You fail, you fall, and you just rise up and go on. When I was through the worst time, I was struck by a video of Ali Abdel suggesting this book, don't believe everything you think. And I, I purchased this book immediately and I started reading through it. It took me almost like one and a, half a month to finish this because I procrastinated a lot. But after finishing this book, it truly changed the way I think nowadays. There are some guidelines that you have to follow when you are reading this book. The first and the foremost is you should be an open book before approaching this book in itself, which means like you have to throw out whatever the idea you have about the life out of your mind and approach it with a new perception. Secondly, don't read this book for information, read it for insight. There is such a beautiful sentence that I loved in the book at the start. If you want to find the truth, look beyond the words and look for a feeling. If you want to find the truth, look for simplicity. What this book will unveil will be very simple. But most of the time, your brain that has ego, it starts thinking that how can things be so simple? It shouldn't. And it starts to make things complex. And it's at that time, you have to remember that if you want to find the truth, look for simplicity. So from the next episode, we'll be brushing up through the pages of the book. Stay tuned, be with me. As I said, we're gonna have big heads on the game in the season two. Make sure to follow Entrobine on all the platform. And if you have any questions regarding your funding stage, investments, or anything that you're struggling through, make sure to write to me at entrobine.gmail.com or you can visit the website www.entrobine.com. Until then, you're listening to entrebine and I'm your host, PJ.